Hello, everybody, and welcome to another special edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Interim Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on the podcast, we're going to be dropping in on a special presentation from our online graduate programs, the Post-Pandemic Workspace, an HR and Employment Law Perspective. And the guest speaker for this one is Isaac Mameski, who you may have heard on the podcast in a previous episode. You can check the show notes below if you're interested in that. But this one's going to be focused on, is the future of work primarily virtual and And if so, what challenges does this entail? What is the new role of the physical workspace, the hybrid workplace? And this one's focused on human resources professionals, employment attorneys, and business leaders that are going to be dealing with this as we move forward in the post-pandemic world. Before we get to the presentation, as always, albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus to make sure you're up to date on everything happening here at Albany Law School. Follow us on social media, or if you want to hear previous episodes of the podcast, subscribe on any of the major services or on our SoundCloud account. Let's get over and listen in on the presentation. At uh, Albany Law School, welcome uh, to our webinar, HR and Employment Law, the post-pandemic uh, workplace with uh, Isaac uh, Mamaiski, who I will introduce you to in, uh, in a moment. Uh, we are recording this session, and so if uh, if you have registered for, for the event, and clearly you have because you're here, uh, we will be sending out a uh, link to, uh, to the event afterwards. Um, please remember that this event is uh, CLE uh, credit, uh, which is um, uh, continuing legal education, uh, and also uh, it uh, qualifies for PDC professional development credit for your SHRM uh, qualifications as well. We are putting on this webinar in partnership with the Capital Region uh, Human Resource Association, the CRHRA. Um, so the, the CLE credits themselves, if I could go back to the previous uh, screen, um, they've been certified by the New York State Continuing Legal Education Board, uh, where we are an accredited provider of CLE education in, uh, in the state of New York. Uh, and this conference has been uh, accredited as, as a source of one continuing uh, legal education credits for both transitional and non-transitional attorneys in New York State. Uh, the New York State Continuing Legal Education Board regulations state that uh, credit shall be awarded only for attendance at an entire course or program or for an attendance at an entire session of a course or program. No credit shall be awarded for attending a portion or, or a portion of a session. Now at, uh, at one, uh, one twenty, uh, Isaac will give the code for those of you wanting to claim the, uh, the CLE credit. Um, so uh, you are most welcome to uh, this session. If we could move to the next slide. Um, we would also welcome you uh, along to our next event, which is gonna be the, the second event of the series in part of our HR in practice webinar series. Uh, this one is called uh, Effective uh, and Practical Management of Employment and Disability Benefits, uh, covering the workers' compensation and disability law. Now that is gonna be on uh, Wednesday, February the 24th, uh, same time, one o'clock till uh, 2 p.m. And uh, Nicole has very helpfully just uh, posted the uh, link to that uh, event uh, in, the, in the chat box there. Please do keep your eyes on the, on the chat box. We will be posting helpful information for you. We would also encourage you, um, both during the event and afterwards, to, uh, to uh, give us your feedback. 
uh, we'll be sending you out a survey after uh, after the event. We would uh, we would be grateful for your feedback so that we can continue to offer these events and continue to uh, improve them as well. Now, uh, this uh, spring term, uh, this week, in fact, we have just launched a, uh, a brand new program for uh, those uh, HR professionals out there who are, who are thinking about um, taking the next step in terms of the, the career ladder. Uh, it is uh, the Human Resources, Law, Leadership and Policy Graduate Program. Uh, it is both a, a nine credit certificate. Uh, it is uh, a 30 credit master's and a 24 credit LLM if, uh, if you have uh, a JD. Um, it can be completed in as little as 12 months, certainly in terms of the, the LLM. The certificate can be completed in as, uh, as little as three months. Uh, our program is industry focused and indeed it's been uh, designed and it's going to be taught by HR industry professionals such as Isaac Mamaisky himself uh, um, plus uh, other, other colleagues. Um, it's uh, it's SHRM aligned. So it is aligned with the principles of the Society of Human Resources Management uh, and it is a flexible program to meet your career needs. So give us a call on 518 uh, 3900261 if you'd like to know some uh, more information about that uh, or send us an email to graduateadmissions at albanylaw.edu. Um, for those of you uh, applying for, for CLE credit, uh, the CLE information was sent out to you. If, uh, if you want to just check your spam filters to, uh, to, to make sure that uh, it, uh, it didn't go astray. Uh, also, for, uh, for those of you interested who are perhaps a, a member of the Society of Human Resources Management and live in the, in the capital region, uh, do you remember that membership of the CRHRA, the Capital Region Human Resources Association, is free uh, if you're a SHRM member and if you're interested give us an email and we will put you in contact with, uh, uh, with the local SHRM chapter. Uh, bear in mind as well they have an annual conference coming up on uh, May the 4th so look out for details of that. Uh, if you have any questions as we progress through there is a, a Q&A button down there so please feel free to, to give us your questions and, uh, and answers. Um, and. Uh, with, uh, without further ado, I will just introduce Isaac Mamaisky to you. He is a partner in the Employment and Human Resources practice of Potomac Law Group, uh, where he represents multinational companies, large educational institutions, national nonprofits, and privately held businesses. Uh, Isaac is also, as I mentioned, an adjunct professor in uh, Albany Law School's new Human Resources Law Leadership and Policy Program, and he's a member of the Law School's online graduate programs. So without, uh, uh, in the Industry Advisory Council. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Isaac Mamaisky. Okay, Th thank you so much, Will. I should have you introduce me for every, for every presentation. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be with you today. It's an honor to be with you today. And I'm very grateful for everyone uh, who took the time out of their busy schedules to join us. So our topic today uh, is the future of work. What will the workplace look like after COVID-19? Uh, as we get into this, if anybody wants to take a deep dive uh, into any of the questions we're talking about, I just put uh, into the chat a link to a paper on this where you can go much deeper uh, into all of it. So as I said, we will be talking about the future of work. But before we look forwards, uh, I'd like us to look backwards. 
And specifically, um, I want to take you back to March of 2017. Now, do you guys remember March of 2017? I mean, really, there's not all that much to remember. The, the key thing to remember from March of 2017 is that we were collectively uh, blissfully ignorant uh, of what was to come uh, just a few years later in March of 2020, uh, which is, of course, when the pandemic began. So in March of 2017, uh, this professor of political science, his name uh, is Robert Kelly, uh, he's being interviewed on BBC uh, from his home office uh, in South Korea. This was a live interview, uh, and I suspect uh, that many of you uh, have seen this interview. So what happens? About a minute into the interview, again, live on BBC, um, his four-year-old daughter uh, prances into the room. And, and when I say prances, I mean this in the most literal sense of the word. She dances her way uh, into this live interview. Now, a couple seconds later, she's followed uh, by her little brother in one of those like baby walker things, you know, because he's too little to actually walk on his own, but using this device, he follows her in. Uh, and, and shortly after him, the professor's horrified wife jumps into the room, sort of extracts the children uh, and, and closes uh, the office door. Now, that BBC interview went viral, like, like super duper viral, has tens of millions uh, of views on YouTube. So if you have not seen it yet, uh, my gift to you uh, is to encourage you to Google Robert Kelly BBC interview. Um, the reason I start with this story and, and sort of what I find most interesting about this story is that today it feels just like another day at the office, right? You know, literally, as I tell the story, Part of me can't help but look at my office door over there to make sure I locked it, right? Because if I didn't, we could have a repeat performance on this very uh, video call. You know, my toddlers, they love to come into my office uh, during Zoom meetings uh, or Zoom presentations, as the case may be, uh, both screaming, we busted down daddy's door. I have no idea who taught them that line, but we busted down daddy's door. I venture to say that anybody uh, working remotely in the time of COVID has had this experience. Uh, perhaps you've personally had this experience, uh, meaning your kids have come in during your Zoom call. Or if you haven't, uh, perhaps it was your professor's kids or a colleague's kids uh, on the other end of a Zoom call. So I think it's important for us to, to, to begin by appreciating that as we discuss the future of work, what we're talking about is quite literally this, right? Like this, what we're doing right now. So despite living just outside Manhattan, right? So a roughly two hour train ride uh, from Albany Law School, uh, here I am presenting to you. And when I say you, uh, I really mean all of you, right? And, and, and that's all of you uh, all around uh, the country uh, who have joined this presentation. Now, going a step further, uh, this webinar is organized by the law school's Human Resources Law Leadership and Policy Program. That is a fully online program. Now, I should say, I, and by the way, I'm not trying to give a marketing pitch to the program. Uh, you know, it, I think it's a great program, but my intent is not to give a marketing pitch, but rather to give you an analogy. So think about this program. Think about what it does. You have out there working professionals who for years 
have wanted an advanced degree, whether it's an LLM or a master's degree, perhaps a certificate in their, in their human resources practice, but because of life and work and kids, they haven't been able to do it, right? In comes this kind of program, and it suddenly opens all sorts of doors for working professionals to have this opportunity that simply wouldn't exist in a traditional classroom. So now, in so many ways, this is a direct analogy to where work is headed. So as the pandemic stretches on, uh, a whole lot has been written about the remote workplace of the future. Experts argue that the pandemic has fast forwarded us by decades uh, in the direction of remote work. Surveys of business leaders uh, suggest that virtual work, uh, working from home is really here to stay. So in our time together today, uh, we're going to explore exactly what this means. So first, we will explore some of the research for and against um, remote work. We will then discuss why this research points to a future in which more people will be working from home more of the time. And then finally, we will consider sort of from a big picture standpoint, the questions and the challenges that this raises for human resources professionals and employment law practitioners and the business leaders uh, they advise. So, so that's, that's where we're headed. Now, this discussion, uh, while hosted by Albany Law School, is certainly not about the legal industry. We are looking at the broader uh, workplace as a whole. But this topic does present uh, what I think is a rare opportunity to use law firms, which are so often mocked uh, as dinosaurs, uh, justifiably uh, or not. We can use law firms as, as a model of innovation and a glimpse uh, into our post-pandemic future. Uh, so with that goal in mind, I hope you'll allow me uh, to begin with a brief uh, sort of personal uh, story, very brief, and it ties in directly to our to our topic. So, you know, I started my career uh, at one of these uh, purported dinosaurs, right? And I don't actually think that, that, that law firms are dinosaurs. I think many of them are quite innovative, which is why we're using them as our example. Uh, but anyway, I started my legal career in the Manhattan office uh, of this uh, global law firm that had been around since 1891. So, so very sort of uh, established firm. As a new associate, they assigned me uh, to the defense team for a public company. This company was on, on the defending end of a multi-party, uh, multi-district commercial litigation. So now, uh, practically, what did this mean that me as junior associate uh, Isaac, uh, I did a lot of document review uh, in defense of this company involved in a multi-party, multi-district uh, commercial litigation. Now. The other members of my team were situated all across the country. This meant that I would come into the office, I would sit down at my desk, and I would proceed to have phone calls and email exchanges and chat messages with paralegals and with attorneys who I had never met in person. Now, we had Skype back then. Literally nobody used it for work, right? I, I might've used it once in my life at that point while traveling abroad. Uh, so I hadn't even seen these people in person. Right. So although my supervisor was in Washington, D.C., I'm in Manhattan, uh, we work with a paralegal team in California. Right. And the other associates uh, working on this case with me were in offices all around the country. It would have been out of the question, absurdity 
to suggest that any of us should do this work from home. Again, this is going back a number of years. A bit over a decade later, uh, following that first foray uh, into remote work, if you will, uh, I joined a law firm in which nearly 150 uh, attorneys, paralegals, and staff work in home offices across the country. This is one of the quote unquote new model law firms. You might recognize some of the names, Culhane Meadows, Fisher Broyles, Ramon, Taylor English, and my own Potomac Law Group. These firms have really been making waves uh, in the legal industry. You see, they figured something out. When you eliminate, as the employer, skyscrapers in Manhattan and Boston and Chicago and DC and other key legal hubs, and you have just a few flex offices instead, then you massively, massively reduce your overhead. That means that the crushing billable hour requirements, uh, sort of which are so familiar in the traditional big law experience, those disappear. The quality of life for attorneys is, 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 is night and day difference. It also means that clients pay lower rates for literally the very same attorneys they had in traditional large firms, because the new model firms, they don't hire first year associates, they don't hire new associates, they only hire lawyers who were trained by the larger firms, sort of not so relevant to the remote work discussion, but relevant to their business model. So now it's really a game changer uh, for legal practice. And it's absolutely not for everyone. Some attorneys love it, right? I love it. Many others prefer going into a traditional office every day. And that's a dynamic that we will discuss throughout this talk. It plays out throughout the workforce. Research of the legal industry has shown that, that you know, what, what have uh, these new model firms done? You know, large and mid-sized firms, they sort of have been uh, showing incremental growth. You know, every year they, they grow a little bit. Uh, new model firms have seen, in, in the words of Law 360, soaring growth. They've been growing by leaps and bounds uh, every year. Now, in a presentation about the general workforce, not about the legal industry, right? Why am I starting with law firms? First of all, maybe I'm a little biased. I'm a lawyer. I work at one of these firms. So I, I you know, the industry is interesting to me. But more importantly, um, I think that these law firms teach us, they give us some lessons uh, about the future of work more generally. And, and they sort of frame our discussion uh, in a very nice way. So what are these lessons? First, they teach us that some industries have taken a deep dive uh, into remote work well before COVID gave us no other options. Some of those industries have also found uh, that they have seen positive employee outcomes, meaning really happy uh, employees, and uh, they have seen tremendous growth as a result of that voluntary experience, uh, experiment before it became a mandatory experiment for all of us. Number two, we learn that when a self-selecting group of employees choose to work from home, those employees tend to do very well in that environment. Lawyers at new model firms are really happy. Uh, like literally, this is not an overstatement, I can't remember the last attorney who left my firm. Attorneys joined the firm and we've been growing, especially since the start of the pandemic. I, I quite literally don't remember the last person who left. 
But a theme that we will come back to over and over again is that working from home is certainly not for everyone. And that's one of the main reasons, by the way, that traditional offices are not going anywhere, right? Traditional offices are also here to stay, much like remote work. And that's a, that, that's a topic we will come back to. Uh, the third thing that, that uh, these new model law firms teach us is the following that when a particular employer has most employees uh, work from home, its office expenses are substantially lower than those of competing employers who have people work from a physical office. Both uh, clients and customers uh, and employees benefit from those cost savings, as does uh, the, the employer itself, of course, and, and its bottom line. So now all of these things provide a glimpse into the post-pandemic workplace. But before getting ahead of ourselves, let's consider the limitations of remote work. And there are significant limitations of remote work. So in our efforts to define the future of work, we have to remember that remote work is not even an option uh, in many industries. So you think about you know, restaurants, schools, childcare centers, hotels, uh, production lines, transportation providers, and museums, and theaters, and gyms, and research labs, and this list could go on and on and on and on. And these types of employers, they might have some limited uh, remote work options, but in general, their purpose and their spirit is lost uh, unless they operate uh, in person. Now, by some estimates, 60% of American workers uh, must do their jobs in person. Remote opportunities are really concentrated in very specific industries. Some examples are technology, finance, insurance, human resources, and law, right? That's sort of what the research bears out. That's what the experts are saying. But in many other industries, it's, it's, it's not possible. So as we talk about the future of work, as we talk about the, the, the virtual office, right? The conversation really applies to that subset of industries which have the option for some or all of their employees uh, to work from home. In those industries, the thing to keep in mind, and we will come back to this again and again, it's a theme, is that people are different. Some people love nothing more than wearing their sweatpants every day, right, and, and, and working from home. Uh, you see, I'm wearing a tie. I, 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 you know, you, you can guess that maybe I am wearing sweatpants. Uh, some people, uh, you know, and, 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 and other people, by the way, think it is the worst thing ever uh, to work from home. Some people are super productive from home, more productive than in the office. Other people just can't seem to focus unless they go to the office every day. You know, there's a bunch of research on this and it's really interesting and we're gonna get into the research. But I think, you know, we've all seen this, right? Like this is what I'm describing is just a day-to-day -day experience that we all have. We have some friends who love working from home and we have others who hate it, right? And this is what I call the team office versus team sweatpants uh, dynamic. And many of us very firmly fall into one team or the other, right? And that's fine, that that's just a reality that we have to take into account when we consider the future of work. And, and the research basically finds uh, that this is a larger trend in the workplace. So now, for every person who embraces the benefits of working from home, 
countless others find themselves experiencing some combination of downsides. So in research, uh, in studies, employees report uh, feeling like they are constantly working when they're home, losing a sense of separation between their work life uh, and their personal life when they work from home, feeling lonely and socially isolated, being unfocused, uh, battling distractions from roommates and from spouses and, and from kids, not having the space or resources to have an effective home office. Um, employers have their own challenges. You know, some employers, they point to the challenge of training uh, new employees who are remote, right? And this makes sense. The argument goes that so much training and development happens during those informal times, right? When spontaneous conversation happens, when jokes happen before and after meetings, as opposed to during the formal, you know, agenda-driven meetings themselves. But those informal times often are lost when everyone works remotely. Now, prior to the pandemic, many companies have experimented with remote work. I already told you about the new model law firms. For them, the experiment worked. Uh, but the outcomes of those experiments did not always weigh in favor uh, of virtual work. So companies like Bank of America, IBM, Yahoo, Aetna, Best Buy, they made national headlines uh, for implementing virtual office arrangements, letting people work from home and then calling everybody uh, back to the office. They ran an experiment and the, the outcome wasn't good. They said, this does not work for us. Of course, it does work for many other companies, but, but again, sort of, we will come back to this theme that there is, uh, you know, that, that there is no right or wrong answer here, just different preferences. We, we will come back to that. Now, research also shows that relationships between remote employees can suffer when they don't have opportunities uh, built in for regular in-person interaction. And by the way, we will come back to this, but one thing we will talk about is how every successful remote work arrangement builds in opportunities for in-person interaction because that's very important for relationships. Now, another concern is that when you have some employees work remotely and you have other employees uh, work in the office, two separate cultures can emerge within the same organization. So when Yahoo uh, famously ended its remote work experiment a number of years from now, uh, I'm sorry, a number of years from now, a number of years uh, ago, uh, their CEO famously said, we have to become one Yahoo again, uh, because it was like two separate companies with those who worked from home and those who worked in the office. Now, a related issue, when a sizable number of employees work from home, uh, the employees who work in the office uh, can suffer some negative consequences. Research have found uh, that, that, that the employees who stay in the office, they have higher absenteeism, uh, higher turnover, meaning they, they leave their employment more often when they have a whole bunch of colleagues uh, who work from home. Uh, so, so, you know, people working from home can create these negative outcomes for those who stay in the office when the employer doesn't take certain steps to prevent those negative outcomes uh, in the form of training and in-person team building and other types of events. Now, another common concern is the productivity uh, of employees who work from home. So basically, here's what researchers have found. When employees have 
pre-existing self-control problems. I, I love that, that phrasing of it. That's their language. When employees have pre-existing self-control problems, uh, then allowing those employees to work from home makes it worse. Uh, so if someone underperforms in the office, right? If someone is, is, is a low performer and you tell that person, okay, go work from home, right? The, the research suggests that their performance just gets even worse when they lose uh, the formal structure of the office. Now, it's also really important to recognize that many employees, they don't have the home circumstances to effectively work from home. Uh, so, so, so what does that mean? You know, we will discuss uh, a study, a very famous study, uh, a little later we'll discuss it, that stands for the proposition that people who work from home are more productive than those who work from the office. So again, the, the study found that, that people uh, in the home office are more productive than people in, in the, the uh, sort of real office, right? But interestingly, in this study, they took volunteers. The only volunteers who were allowed to participate were people who, one, had a home office, right? Two, the office was not a bedroom, right? And three, nobody was allowed in the office during the workday. No kids, no, no, no spouses, nobody. When people have to work from bedrooms or from living rooms and they battle noises from kids and spouses and roommates and whoever else, that is a productivity disaster in the words of, of the author of that study. But I don't think we need an expert uh, to tell us that that's a productivity disaster. It's, 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 it's intuitive, it's, it's obvious. Um, but for many employees, of course, that's the only option, right? They don't have a home office. They don't have the space uh, for a home office. Now look, we've all been working from home, right? We've all been working from home. We've all been studying from home uh, as, as the case may be. We all have pretty extensive experience uh, following COVID with this topic of remote work. I venture a guess, right, that some of you hear the downsides of remote work and you're there behind your screens sort of nodding in agreement, uh, thinking you can't wait to get back to the office. I also venture to say that others of you hear the downsides of remote work and you're banging your desk, right? You're banging your desk saying, absolutely not. I am far more productive from home. I save far more time not having to commute, right? And, and again, this is the team office versus team sweatpants dynamic, which we will sort of come back to throughout. So, so rest assured, right? If you like working from home, there are plenty of arguments to support that. And we're going to talk about them uh, momentarily. The key thing to keep in mind is that so much of this depends on the particular employee, the particular industry, the particular managers of the company and the particular employer, right? Like this is a very sort of uh, 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 circumstance fact specific uh, topic. Now, at this point, let's briefly pause uh, so I can read the CLE word. The CLE word is pandemic, P-A-N-D-E-M-I-C. Once again, the CLE word is pandemic. P-A-N-D-E-M-I-C. Now, I have to say, I have always been on the receiving end of the CLE voice reading the CLE word, right? I've never been the CLE voice. So this was really a, a very uh, 
uh, exciting thing that, that I was just able to do. So I hope I hope I uh, I hope I matched other CLE voices and how I just did that. A anyway, um, let's consider the other side of the coin, right? What are some of the arguments in favor of remote work? So first of all, a post-pandemic analysis of email, chat, and calendar data shows that remote work has in many cases extended the workday by 10 to 20%. That finding has been used to show that employees are actually more productive working from home. Now look, a longer workday certainly uh, doesn't necessarily indicate higher productivity, but other researchers have in fact found that at least in some industries, uh, for some employees, they are far more productive from home uh, than they are in the office. Next benefit. Uh, employers can cut costs by reducing their office space. So many employers might start to look at the physical office uh, sort of as an add-on to remote work. So offices will be available for client meetings, they will be available uh, for team building events, uh, but their purpose will be to create opportunities uh, for in-person connection, for in-person uh, interaction, they will no longer serve as the primary location of work. Again, depends on the industry, depends on the company. We're talking about some, some subset of, of the larger uh, sort of employment world. Uh, now, research has actually found, again, in certain settings, that remote employees are more engaged and more productive uh, than in-person employees uh, when two factors are present. Number one, when they work from home most of the time, uh, but still have regular opportunities uh, for, for in-person interaction uh, with coworkers. So again, they work from home most of the time, but still have regular in-person opportunities. That combination is very important. Just working from home, no in-person opportunities uh, does not lead to the same uh, positive outcomes. So, so at least for some employers, um, uh, you know, that will be sort of the, the, the future of, of the office, right? An opportunity for in-person connection, not the primary work location. Now, another thing, a benefit for both employees and employers, having a remote workforce allows employers to access a national and global talent pool, right? And correspondingly, it, it allows employees to access a global pool of employers. So if employers only hire locally, right, then they limit, they limit themselves to those people who live near the office or are willing to move uh, near the office. And, you know, this means that an employer in sort of a sparsely populated area might have a really hard time finding the right people for very specific roles. Less of an issue for a company in Manhattan, right, but, but far more uh, in, in, in companies in sort of more remote locations. So this can be huge uh, for employers. This can also be huge for employees, right? Think of what I said before about the Human Resources Law Leadership and Policy Program, right? Students can take classes from anywhere, right? They don't need to appear in person. They don't need to only be able to go to their local university, which might be their local law school, which might be an hour away, right? And, and by analogy, you know, employees in this new workplace they can live anywhere, right? And their employer can be located anywhere. And that's very appealing for many employers and many employees. Now, from an employee morale standpoint, studies have found that remote arrangements can reduce work-related stress. They can increase uh, employee confidence uh, and they can even increase communications among employees, right? Who feel bound to communicate more because they're not seeing each other in person. 
On a different topic, studies also show, studies in psychology also show that people hate commuting, right? Uh, for many people, commutes are among the absolutely worst part of their day. By eliminating lengthy commutes, employees can spend more time with family, more time with friends, while still working the same number of hours. Uh, studies also show that people who work remotely are much less likely to leave their jobs. Uh, this means that those employees are happier. It also means that employers don't need to waste resources onboarding and hiring and training uh, employees to replace people who are leaving. I mean, they do, but, but not as often uh, for people who work from home. And, and by the way, just anecdotally, I mean, that's based on research, uh, but anecdotally, that is certainly uh, what I have observed in my law firm, where, where I, again, I can't remember the last attorney who left. Now, in one interesting survey, more than half of employees who attend work in person, more than half said that they'd be willing to switch jobs for more opportunities to work from home. Now, at this point, justifiably, you might find yourself a little confused, right? What do we make of these conflicting findings? What do we make of the conflicting research? Does remote work cause socially isolated, depressed, and unproductive employees? Or does remote work increase productivity, lower employee stress, and benefit the employer's bottom line? So as we're about to discuss, the answer to both questions is yes. Yes, both of those things are true. Certainly, certain seemingly conflicting statements in this analysis uh, can be true at the same time. Employees can be both less productive and more productive from home, right? It depends on the circumstances. And when we look at both the academic and popular writing on remote work, employers can find ample approach, ample approach, employers can find ample support, right, for either approach whether that's letting everyone work from home or calling everyone back to the office, right? There is by no means a consensus. And here's why. Every employee is different. And so is every manager. And so is every company. Some employees would love nothing more than to continue working from home forever, right? And perhaps those are the ones who are more productive out of the office. Other employees can't wait to return to work. And perhaps those are the ones who feel socially isolated and depressed at home. Some management teams embrace remote work. And those are likely the management teams who enjoy managing a remote workforce. Other management teams continue valuing FaceTime. They're not comfortable managing someone by Zoom, right? And, and, and those are the ones who have challenges uh, when it comes to managing uh, employees who work remotely. Now let's consider some research on this, right? Let's see what the numbers tell us. In a recent study of 25,000 employees, 40% said they feel strongly that their employer should provide optional remote work after the pandemic. 40% want optional remote work. 75% said that they'd like to continue working remotely at least occasionally. 54% said they'd like remote work to be their primary style of working. But let's consider the other side of these numbers, right? 60% of employees did not feel strongly about having remote work options. 25% are not interested in continuing to work remotely. 46% did not want remote work 
to be their primary method of working. Again, people are different, right? So as we know from day-to-day -day experience, this is the case. This is the case among our friends. It's the case among our colleagues. Now let's consider managers and CEOs. Here are the results of a recent survey of senior executives and CEOs. It's in my paper, which I linked to. I think it's a McKinsey survey. I don't remember. I, I might be wrong about that, but it's, it's, in, my, uh, it, it's in the paper. 30% of senior executives and CEOs projected needing less office space in three years due to remote work. 26% uh, projected that employees will continue working from home indefinitely. Again, let's look at the other side of these numbers. 70% of executives do not project needing less office space three years from now. 74% do not anticipate that employees will work from home indefinitely, right? So now as an attorney who regularly counsels management teams uh, addressing these types of questions, my experience certainly aligns with this research. Employees and managers have different preferences about remote work, even in the same industries, right? Companies down the road from each other who do the same thing will take different approaches uh, to their workforce. Likewise, if given the choice, employees will make very different decisions uh, about where they want to work. This element of human preference is, is why uh, the future of work will be what experts have been calling the hybrid workplace. What is the hybrid workplace? This means that when you look at the future of work on a broad national scale, many employers will go primarily virtual, others will remain primarily in person, and yet others will fall somewhere in between allowing more employees to work from home more of the time. Now from there, we reach a really interesting and really significant question uh, from a legal human resources and management standpoint. That is the following. Who decides where employees work? Who decides where employees work? Basically what's going to happen is this. Some employers will allow their employees to choose where they work. Others are going to hand the decision down to their employees and not allow them to choose. The employer will choose where they work. A key theme that we've been discussing is that people are different and they have different preferences, right? If employers let people choose where they work, the research suggests they will have a happier uh, and, and potentially more productive workplace. People who want to work from home can do that. People who want to work from the office uh, can do that too. It may be the best of both worlds. Let's consider some reasons for this. So in one really famous study, this is the study I mentioned earlier, researchers analyzed a 16,000 person uh, Chinese company. It's actually really interesting. The, 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 very briefly, the owner of the company uh, was in a, 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 a class and his professor uh, was a business school professor uh, teaching about how to analyze the workforce. And this guy basically said, hey, let's do this fun little study uh, of, of my company. Um, again, it, it, more details are, are in my paper. You can see the actual study, really interesting study. So now the company initially had a group of volunteers uh, work from home. After a trial period, they saw how productive they were. They allowed all employees to choose if they wanted to work from home or work from the office. At that point, Half of the initial volunteers said, we're going back to the office, right? We're done working from home. The other half decided to stay working from home. Here's what the study found. When people try working remotely, then have the option to go back from work, go back to work, 
right? But they choose to continue working remotely. Those are the most productive employees, right? They've tried working remotely. They have the option to go back. They decide to keep working remotely, right? Those are the most productive people. I pause for a moment, right? Because I hope some sparks are firing, right? And we're making a connection of what this means for the post-COVID workplace, right? COVID has been a forced experiment in remote work. All of us have tried working remotely. Not all of us, I mean, essential workers can't, but so many of us have tried working remotely. Now that we've all tried it, the most famous study on this topic, the research shows that the people who choose to continue working remotely should be the most productive employees uh, of, 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 of all the employees out there. I think that's fascinating. I think it's really, really fascinating. Now, there's a great book. I highly recommend this book to all of you. It is called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. I never know how to pronounce his last name. Maybe I'll, I'll email him for that. Um, Sean Acor presents extensive research uh, about the benefits of employee happiness to all aspects of employment, including employee productivity. His basic premise is that happy employees are the best employees. So therefore employers should take whatever steps they can to keep their workforce happy. Sean Aker in this book, in The Happiness Advantage, he goes to great pains to make the point that giving employees choice, allowing them to be the masters of their own fate, in his words, right? That's a key element of their happiness, right? Giving them choice. And research on remote work absolutely supports this finding that allowing people to choose increases individual happiness and overall uh, workplace morale. But obviously, for so many good reasons, this often will not be possible, right? Many employers have incredibly strong justifications for deciding where employees work. One random example, imagine a company that has good analytics tracking their sales team, right? What they see is that they, their sales team is far more productive from the office than they are uh, working from home. A particular employee might want to work from home, right? But that company knows that if that's a sales employee, that person is gonna be more productive working from the office. We could give hundreds of strong justifications for why employees, uh, employers wanna have their employees in the office. That's just sort of one random example. So, so we could have really good reasons. An employer could have really good reasons for telling everyone we need you in the office. But here's the thing, regardless of how strong our reasons are, Whenever management makes decisions and employees don't have a say in those decisions, some employees won't like the outcomes. Those employees will be unhappy with the outcomes. And what we know is that unhappy employees create challenges from both the human resources and legal standpoint. So let's consider some of the challenges that stem from employers choosing where employees work. And now here we're going to get into the legal analysis of this and the human resources uh, uh, considerations, right? Now I should be very clear. None of this is to say that employers should not choose where employees work. As I've said over and over again, it, it, employers might have really good reasons, right? And really strong preferences to have their employees work from the office. This is just to say that if employers uh, make decisions for their employees about where they work, 
Coming out of the pandemic, they need to keep certain legal and human resources considerations in mind. And we're going to talk about those. So first of all, while COVID remains a significant health concern, some well-intentioned employees, they might want to protect older employees and disabled employees and pregnant employees, right? These are people the CDC has identified as being at higher risk of complications from COVID. How do those employers intend to protect them? What do they intend to do to protect these vulnerable employees? Uh, make just those employees stay home, right? Tell everyone else, you guys can come into the office unless you're pregnant, unless you're disabled, or unless you're older, in which case you must stay home, right? The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has addressed this question. They have explained that even when employers are driven by what they call benevolent, uh, what do they call benevolent concern, right? Benevolent intentions, they cannot require vulnerable employees uh, to stay home while they allow everybody else uh, to go to the office, right? This would violate various uh, federal and state anti-discrimination laws. The EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, does encourage employers to give employees the choice of where they work, right? But the key is it has to be the employee's choice. There's a flip side to this. Managers, as we've just said, they can't attempt to protect employees by forcing them to stay home. But employers may be obligated to allow remote work as a reasonable accommodation. The Americans with Disabilities Act requires employers to provide accommodations uh, to enable otherwise qualified employees with disabilities to complete the essential functions of their job, except when providing an accommodation would be an undue hardship for the employer. Now, prior to the pandemic, courts often denied remote work requests uh, based on a very specific rationale. They would agree with employers who argued that employees cannot perform the essential functions of the job from home. Courts placed a lot of weight on in-person interaction, employee-supervisor relationships, sort of that face-to-face -face time. Uh, but keep in mind, perhaps this will come as a shock to you, judges are not the most tech-savvy crowd, right? Judges are not the most tech-savvy crowd. Many of them had never worked from home themselves. Many of them had never even heard of Zoom <laughs> prior to the pandemic, right? Uh, that is certainly no longer the case. Research has actually found that some courts have become more productive, meaning they've tried more cases uh, since the pandemic started and since they've gone virtual. So coming out of the pandemic, employers might have a much harder time arguing uh, that remote work creates some kind of undue hardship or employees can't perform the essential functions of the job uh, from home. Uh, and that's especially because those same employers likely implemented successful remote work arrangements during the pandemic. Uh, of course, when employees can choose where they work, this point becomes moot, right? Employers don't need to defend the denial of a remote work accommodation when employees are the ones choosing where they work. Now, a related consideration is uh, this sort of topic of employees uh, who are afraid to come into the workplace due to COVID. Now, if the fear stems from a disability, then we go back to the discussion we just had. Uh, but, but other than that, the consensus among practitioners is sort of outside of this reasonable accommodation context. Employers have no legal obligation to allow frightened employees to work from home. But, but 
This is one of those situations where the, the, the legal answer likely should not dictate the human resources outcome. From the standpoint of employee relations, employee happiness, workplace morale, employers would be well served uh, to let scared employees work from home if that's possible. And in fact, certain employers have made national headlines uh, by firing employees uh, who, who wanted to, who, who didn't, who were afraid to come into the office, right? No employer uh, wants to be in that headline. Now, our next consideration arises from how employers decide who is allowed to come in and who's not allowed to come in. So, 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 so state and federal anti-discrimination laws uh, say that workers can't be treated differently based on protected characteristics, as we've already discussed, such as pregnancy, disability, and age. To comply with these law laws, employers need to have clear objective reasons for allowing some workers to stay home while requiring others uh, to go into the office. So what are some of these reasons? Uh, it can be based on job role, right? Employers can say only employees in certain roles are allowed to work from home. Or maybe it's based in seniority that only employees who have been with us for X number of years can work from home. Or perhaps they say only the highest performers uh, can, can work remotely. But, but in any event, the decisions have to be based on objective uh, reasons. So now let's switch gears. So far, we've been talking about the quote unquote public law statutory bases uh, uh, that weigh in favor of allowing employees to choose where they work. Another important consideration is that contracted employees, meaning those who are not at will, right? They might have a contractual right uh, to, to, to work in a particular location. I saw a recent contract, it's actually on the SEC's website, where a senior executive was promised a very particular office, the same office he had in the past. If that employer said everyone has to work remotely now, I could certainly see a colorable argument uh, that this person says, hey, I have a contractual right to that office. Now, again, this only applies to contracted employees. Uh, it does not apply to at-will employees. And, and as a practical matter, uh, most employees are at-will which means they can leave employment at any time, they can be removed from employment at any time, so this wouldn't apply to them. Um, now, we have now discussed sort of the employment law implications, we have now touched on, I should say, the employment law implications of who owns the choice regarding where employees work. There are other considerations that apply regardless of who owns that choice. So whether employers decide where employees work or employees decide where, where they work, uh, there are some other legal considerations that we have to keep in mind. So here's the thing. When employees work from home, uh, both employees and employers may become subject to the employment laws in the states where those employees live, right? Think about what this means. Imagine a business that's based in New York. They have some employees who live in New Jersey, some who live in New York and others who live in Connecticut. When those employees only worked from the New York office, they were just subject to New York employment law. When now they suddenly start working out of New Jersey and Connecticut, New Jersey and Connecticut law applies as well. Now imagine this employer also has an office in DC. In DC, they have some employees who live in Maryland, others who live in Virginia, right? And others who live in DC. So now this employer that was once subject to two states employment laws is now subject to six states employment laws, right? And state employment laws differ in really significant ways. 
minimum wage obligations could fundamentally change, right? Employers could have to pay people much more. Leave obligations. Some states require paid medical leave, right? Others don't. COVID leave, family leave, pregnancy leave, right? All these things vary uh, by state. Um, certain states require employers to pay employees for technology and electronic devices uh, and internet that they use to, to do their work from home. Other states don't, right? So, so you know, a comparison of state-by-state state employment laws is certainly beyond the scope of, of our talk. And I'm very conscious of, of the time we have left and we are right on schedule, by the way. Um, so, but, but the key takeaway is that uh, employers that were previously single state employers might've now become multi-state employers. And employers uh, who were multi-state employers who might've only operated in two states or three states now may, might operate in many, many more states. Uh, and, and, and all those states have their own employment laws uh, which apply. Okay, we're nearing the end. So thank you, thank you. So thank you for your attention, I should say. So at this point, I want to go back. Will, don't get too excited. We're not there yet. One, one moment, one moment. At this point, I wanna go back to where we started. Um, I was recently on a Zoom call uh, when my toddlers uh, busted down the door, uh, as, as they like to say. This was not the kind of call when I needed to shoo the kids away, uh, right? So I picked them up and I introduced them to my colleagues uh, on, on the Zoom call. At that point, the group set aside its formal agenda and spent a few minutes uh, discussing our families. By the end of the meeting, we felt much closer uh, than we ever had while sitting together in person in the same room prior to the pandemic. Many experts argue, and I'm quoting now, that remote work has created a shift to being able to live one life that better blends work and home. One life that better blends work and home. To many people, that's exactly the appeal of remote work. And yet we should also appreciate that the last thing some employees want is to better blend work and home. Many people want the exact opposite, right? They want to go to the office every day. They want to make a clear separation between their personal and professional lives. And then they wanna leave work at work when they go home, never introducing their kids to their coworkers in the process. Of course, there's no right or wrong answer here. They're just different preferences. And taking a step back from this discussion, these different preferences are what make the field of human resources and employment law so interesting. It's the humanness of it all, that people are different, right? And those different preferences play out in all different kinds of work decisions, including remote work. So I was recently reading an article uh, by the author of, of a book called New York Management Law. And he wrote something so simple and yet so insightful. He said the following, I've been representing companies regarding employment law matters for 13 years. Based on this experience, I want to share an observation. It's a relatively obvious, simple and practical one. Yet, I believe it will help many employers if they take it to heart. So here it is. Happy employees seldom make legal trouble for their employers or HR trouble, I'd add. Happy employees seldom make legal trouble for their employers. And as it happens, extensive research shows that happy employees are also the most productive. At its core, this is what makes choice so important. People are different and those differences impact where they prefer to spend their days and how productive they are uh, in those settings. 
And, and as employers make some really significant decisions about the future of their workforces, they would be well served uh, uh, to keep employee happiness uh, top of mind. And with that, thank you so much uh, for your time. Isaac, thank you. And uh, we're delighted that you didn't have a Robert Kelly moment with your, your kids battering down your, your door because uh, you gave us some very, you entertained us and you gave us some very, some very informa interesting information. So thank you for that. Uh, I do have, um, we've just got some quick questions for you. Uh, for those of you who posted in the Q&A, um, Isaac will be responding to, uh, to each of your questions. There are some generic questions. Will we send out the CLE information again? Yes, we will. Will we send that article out to you again? Yes, we will. Uh, will there be a recording that we will send out to everybody who registered? Yes, we will. Um, and uh, so Isaac, just, just a few questions. When, uh, when an employer decides who can work remotely, uh, you said that they should use objective criteria so that decisions don't have a negative impact on protected groups. Uh, now, among the options, you mentioned allowing the highest performers to work remotely. Uh, aren't, uh, aren't performance reviews subjective? All right, so that's a, a, a very, uh, I think it's a very interesting question and a very interesting point. You know, for starters, I should mention that these remote work decisions are very new. There's very little literature out there uh, on the factors that employers should use in, in the decision-making process about who can work remotely and who can't. But we can draw analogies from other areas. Now, where do these same questions come up? If we were in a room together, I would, I would ask for volunteers. I don't want to put my friend Will on the spot, so I will not put Will on the spot. Uh, but, but I will say that these questions come up in a much more commonly explored area of employee separations, furloughs, layoffs, those types of decisions, right? In making those decisions, employers have a legal obligation not to treat employees differently based on protected characteristics. That is the very same legal obligation they have in making remote work decisions. So turning to the actual question, employers can certainly give privileges to high performing employees. And employers should bear in mind that performance-based decisions can be subjective, right? So taking the other context into account, here's a common approach. When employers rely on performance-based criteria, they should minimize subjectivity, right? They should look at objective sales targets. They should look at numerical portions of performance reviews rather than free flow narratives by managers, which could be much more uh, subjective. Um, second question, you, you mentioned that the research can support different kinds of management decisions, um, whether it's calling everyone back to the office, uh, having everyone work from home or some combination of both. Do, do you personally have a, a view about the best path forward? I mean, look, uh, perhaps as you've gathered by now, uh, I, I have done my, my utmost best to do justice to both sides of the argument. Uh, I am on team sweatpants personally, right? Like I love working from home. So I have to say that my, my sort of small bias here is in that direction while also appreciating uh, the, the value of, of having everyone in the office. So, so my personal view, uh, based on all the research, taking it all together, is that if a particular work environment is conducive to remote work, right, 
then the best approach is giving employees choice. Um, and, 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 and also you have to build in regular opportunities for in-person interaction and in-person connections. And you have to train everyone, right? And this is where HR comes in. You have to train your managers. You have to train your employees. That so much has been said on best practices for working from home. And so many people have absolutely no idea what those best practices are. Good training uh, will make for a productive, effective homework environment. Um, so yes, th that is my, my, my personal view. And, and I can just add, do we have a, a minute, Will, or do you want me to wrap up? Because if we have- No, no, you, you've, you've got a minute. Um, I've just got a, a couple more questions I'd love to ask. Um, if we could finish by about five past, that'll be great. You know what? Let, let's move on then. Let's move on. I'll, I'll spare you my, my detailed answer. So um, can, can employers mandate vaccinations if they want to call everyone back? Uh, and what else should employers think about when they bring people back to the office? Okay, great. So first of all, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission just put out guidance uh, on this question. And what the EEOC said is, is that uh, employers can mandate that employees uh, get vaccinated. And if an employee can't get vaccinated because of uh, a disability or a sincerely held religious belief, and if a reasonable accommodation is not possible, the EEOC said uh, that the employer can actually tell that person they can't come in to the workplace. Now, they might be entitled to paid leave in this situation, right? Uh, they, they, there are various entitlements that they might have, but employers can essentially tell people that they can't come in if they're not vaccinated. Now, I should also mention, I saw a really interesting article recently in the New York Times where they were arguing that from a big picture public policy standpoint, this was a very intentional move because if employers mandate vaccinations, then many employees who are on the fence will end up getting a vaccination, whereas they otherwise wouldn't have. So employers are, are almost playing this like governmental role, interestingly, uh, in, 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 in the vaccination uh, rollout. So I, I thought that was a very sort of insightful um, article. And then beyond that, the, the larger topic of bringing everyone back, you know, COVID has sparked the whole subspecialty uh, in employment law of return to work planning, reopening planning. Um, and, 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 you know, there's so much on that topic that you, people feel free to email me questions, but I, I, we don't have time to get into it with the minute we have left. Final question. And this is not a planted question at all. So Isaac, you are teaching on the brand new uh, Human Resources Law Leadership and Policy Program offered by uh, Albany, Albany Law School as a master's a certificate and an LLM. Um, what are you teaching? Ah, great. I, first of all, I am honored and excited uh, to be teaching in this program. Um, the first class I will be teaching is on ethics and compliance uh, in the workplace. It is, I, I mean, genuinely, it is such a fascinating area. Ethics and compliance is a new field, right? Uh, it, it, it's, it's a new career option for attorneys. There are so many fascinating questions, so many interesting sort of nuances to ethics and compliance, not the least of which is the fact that everybody in ethics and not everybody, many people who work in the field are attorneys, right? And yet it's technically like an auditing role rather than a legal role. So there are so many different dynamics. Uh, fascinating. I can't wait to teach that class. Uh, and that one uh, will be starting March 23rd, uh, I believe. Uh, it will. Will can certainly correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, and, and then 
My next class starts in August. Uh, it's also a really cool one. It's on uh, workforce recruitment, retention, and development from a legal lens. And that basically looks at the life cycle of employment from hiring an employee to onboarding them, to training them, to promoting them, developing them, all from a legal standpoint. Again, fascinating. Like it's a fun, interesting, fascinating area. I can't wait uh, to connect with students and dive into these classes. So it's, it's very exciting. Well, Isaac, if you show even an ounce of the enthusiasm uh, that you've shown today in terms of your teaching, which I'm sure you will, um, those students are going to be uh, in for a treat. Uh, you, you, you truly are a, uh, a master of your, your subjects. This has been entertaining. It's been fascinating. I now know I belong to a team called Team Sweatpants, um, which, which I, I am proud to, uh, to, to bear that, uh, that title. Isaac, thank you so much indeed. Um, for everybody who joined us, thank you for, for, for coming here today. We hope you took away something useful from, uh, from this event. Um, I do apologize um, that, that some of you had uh, issues uh, registering, but for all of those of you who did register, uh, whether you were able to get in or not, we will be sending out a recording of this uh, and uh, uh, you will be able to also uh, read uh, the article that uh, Isaac was referring to, which summarizes many of the key points that he's actually spoken about uh, today. For those of you who posted questions and answers, if we've not answered them, then we will be reaching out to you with, uh, with an answer to those questions. Uh, and finally, before you go, please do not forget that our next event is Wednesday the 24th, uh, again, same time, uh, one o'clock to two o'clock, uh, and that's the, the second in our HR in Practice webinar series, Effective and Practical Management of Employment and Disability, disability Benefits, um, Workers' Compensation and Disability Law. Uh, one final point, uh, if you're waiting for SHRM credit, um, once we've got that, we will email it out to everybody as well. And Isaac, with your CLE credit voice, what was that code word again? Ah, pandemic. The pandemic. You have the archetypal CLE. You, you've got the job from now onwards. Uh, folks, thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.